Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We are delighted to have you back with us once again. This is week number 13. So we are very nearly at the end of this particular subject. We're looking at death, dying, and the future hope. And we're finding that above all, this is an encouraging and hopeful subject rather than one that we could be discouraged or worried or fearful about. And this week, we're going to be looking at in the greater scheme of things, a smaller segment about the judgment. So what about the judging process? Why is there a judgment? Well, to help us understand the answer to that question, we have the author of the Sabbath School Study Guide. He is Dr. Alberto Tim. He is also an associate director of the Ellen G. White Estate. Alberto, welcome back once again. It's an honor for me to be with you. So let's look at this judgment. Let me, let me begin by asking this question. If God knows everything, if he knows the end from the beginning, everything from Genesis to Revelation and in between and beyond, and we're saved by grace, what's the point of the judgment? Why does there need to be a judgment if these things are true? Many years ago, Maurice Vanden started uh, an article with a question, how would you feel if coming to heaven, uh, Billy Graham would not be there and Adolf Hitler would be your neighbor? And then he goes on. He suggested, he's not suggesting that, that Adolf Hitler would be there, but he said, well, probably you would be wondering, I am in, at the right place? And how does it come that Adolf Hitler is here? So heaven will be a place of surprises. Many people that we would believe that would be there will not be. And people that we would say that would never be there will be there. So God submits himself, or in other words, he accommodates himself to our human condition uh, as creatures, to explain that what we cannot understand by ourselves. He knows everything. He does not need a judgment, but he actually submits himself in this way. And going back to the point of salvation by grace, I think that to keep the balance in, uh, in regard to salvation, we need to have three concepts in mind. The first one, Sinners are are saved by grace alone. They are justified by faith and they are judged by works. There was a time in human history, especially in the Middle Ages and so on, that people really emphasized, preachers emphasized very much the concept of judgment. And today people are more into grace without judgment. I think that we should have that kind of balance with, with uh, these three concepts. Saved by grace, justified by faith, and judged by works. So that helps us understand it at least a little bit. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a curveball. I'm going to attempt to throw a curveball here and share a text that seems to indicate that certain people don't need to worry about the judgment. And that text is John 5, verse number 24. And I happen to have a red letter Bible, and this passage happens to be in red. So that means that Jesus is speaking. So we can trust what he has to say. 
In John 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, again, just taking that text, that scripture on its own, it does sound problematic, but we've got more than just that verse in the Bible. So help us to understand it. Actually, some people believe that those who are in Christ will never face judgment. But this is a misunderstanding, I think, of the whole uh, context of the Bible, the teachings of the Bible on this matter. Actually, William Shea, in one of his books, pointed out that in the Old Testament you have more than 20 judgments of God's people. You have the judgment of an individual, you have of a group, and a whole nation then later on. So, there are judgments. You have other passages in the New Testament. For instance, you have Second um, Corinthians 5, verse 10, where Paul says that all of us will be judged. And when it comes to the parable of the final judgment, for instance, in Matthew uh, 25, verses 31 to 46, you will see that there are not only the goats or the wicked, but also the sheep standing for the righteous. And Paul also uh, speaks about the judgment, as we already mentioned. And when it comes, for instance, to the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 11, verse 1, there is that apocalyptic expression to measure the sanctuary or the temple, the altar, and those who worship in the, the sanctuary. What does it mean, really, those who worship? That's the judgment of God's people. So we cannot excuse ourselves saying that God's people are not judged. In the Greek original for this word here in the Gospel of John, the meaning is not only judgment, Actually, it means the condemnation in the judgment. So some of the Bible translations are very careful of pointing out this matter that in reality, God's people are not condemned at the judgment. But in other words, they will be vindicated. But this does not mean that they are absent for any judgment process. So they experience the judgment, but the condemnation is what they don't have to experience. And that's, I hope that's encouraging to you because it certainly is for me. Let, let, me, let me toss another idea out here, another, another question. Let's say that we, we believe that when a person dies, they go immediately, their soul or their spirit or something goes immediately to heaven when they die or, or for that matter, to hell or to purgatory. If we take that position that we go immediately someplace when we die. What's the purpose of the judgment? What, is the, what sense does the judgment make if that's what we believe? In that case, I think that the judgment becomes meaningless. Why to be judged if you are already rewarded? If you are already, already in, in heaven or hell? 
You could say that purgatory would be a stage of growing according to the Roman Catholic Church, then you would be evaluated, you would be judged later on. But if you believe in heaven and hell, then it does not make, that does not make any sense at all. But uh, at the same time, what you will see in this case, that you would need two judgments, a double judgment, because... Uh, Plato, uh, recording Socrates speaking in his book uh, Phaedrus, he speaks of a judgment immediately after that. So for people to be rewarded, that requires a judgment after that. And this concept has been incorporated into the Roman Catholic uh, uh, tradition and also into the evangelical circles as well, to a large extent. So this is a concept that comes from Greek philosophy. Again, the, a judgment, an individual judgment immediately after that. But then you are judged again at a final judgment because this the Bible teaches. So it's a matter of trying to combine the pagan with the biblical concept of a judgment. But being already rewarded, I don't see any reason why there is a need for a judgment later on, especially the final judgment. So you made mention of something here about combining the pagan with the biblical. Is this something that has gone on for a long time? This doesn't sound like it's something new. What are some of the dangers of trying to to combine the teachings of Plato or Socrates with the teachings of the Bible? Where does that lead us? Where does that end? Where, what's the end result of trying to do that? You know, when you try to combine the two things, usually each one of them have to lose something so that they can match together. Of course, they were some kind of polishments of Greek philosophy, as we spoke in the past already. But at the same time, the Bible becomes adjusted to philosophy to become more tasteful so to say. And that's what happened in the, under the influence of Hellenism. So what we're seeing is the bringing of, of truth and error together. And if, and if you take truth and you mingle error into it, it no longer remains truth. And the last time I checked, the Bible says that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But if the truth ceases to be the truth, then freedom ceases to be freedom. And Jesus wants you to be free. That's really one of the reasons why we've been looking at this subject this quarter for the last 13 weeks. We've been looking at the subject of death, of dying, and of a future hope. Jesus has a hope for you. He has a plan for you. He has an expected end for you. And the only real way that you can reach that expected end is by trusting him is by having faith in him, is by allowing him to guide you and direct you and correct your course from time to time. Because in truth, we all need that correction. Ultimately, his desire is for you to experience life, eternal life, for you to experience that, that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, for you to wear that crown, that immortal crown that Paul speaks of in his valedictory. And that's available to you, to me, to really everyone, 
if we choose to embrace and receive the message of the gospel that Jesus has for us. But how do we do that? Well, it's by rejecting error and embracing truth, rejecting combinations of truth and error, which ultimately end up being error, and embracing the pure gospel of Jesus Christ as we find it in his word. So we hope that you have enjoyed this study, and we're not done yet. We're continuing. In fact, we still have a little ways to go. But as we take a break here in just a moment, I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet done it, don't miss this opportunity to pick up the companion book for this quarter's Sabbath school lesson. It is, of course, by Dr. Alberto Tim. It's called On Death, Dying, and the Future Hope. And you can pick this up on the It Is Written shop at itiswritten.shop. Again, that is itiswritten.shop. The name of the book is On Death, Dying, and the Future Hope. And of course, the author is Dr. Alberto Tim. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes as we continue looking at this judgment, finding out why it's so important for us and why God loves us enough to send us through this judgment. We'll be right back. He spent 32 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. More than half his life behind bars, even though he was an innocent man. Junk science, false testimony, and shoddy investigative work came together to send a man to prison for more than three decades. Join me for Not Guilty, where you'll hear from the people at the center of the exoneration of an innocent man. We'll look not only at innocent people being freed, but at the phenomenon of guilty people being pardoned. People who committed the offense, who broke the law, and yet were set free by God Himself. Every person alive has sinned and come short of the glory of God, and yet God offers pardon and forgiveness to all, absolutely free. Don't miss Not Guilty, where you'll learn that no matter your past, no matter your present, you can face the future with confidence, without fear, and with absolute hope. Not Guilty, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're looking at the judging process today and trying to understand it just a little bit more. Let me begin, Alberto, this next segment with another question here for you. Um, If the judgment is going on right now, which we believe that it is, the Bible indicates that it is, but if the judgment is going on right now and my name comes up in the judgment... What happens to my freedom of choice? What happens to my free will after that? Am am I still free to choose? Does that nullify my free will? What about if my name comes up right now? I think that we have to, to ground our understanding of it on a matter that our understanding of divine foreknowledge. Divine foreknowledge is absolute, God knows everything, but is not causative. In other words, is not because God knows that things have to happen. Is because they will happen, God knows already in advance. And this distinction makes the whole difference between one case or another one. Some people say that God doesn't know. Okay, 
In this case, God is absolved, so to say. But if he knows, then it has to happen. That's not the case. So God can, can judge me based on his foreknowledge. But I never will, uh, will never lose my free will because he knows what I will be choosing. So he knows if I will be saved or lost. But he still pleads with me because he is love and his nature, his character requires that he should always treat me. Even if I will be lost, trying to, to beg with me, plead with me, trying to, uh, to accept his offer of salvation. So we still have that ability to choose. He doesn't take that away from us. And that's, that's fantastic news. Let me kind of drill down on something else here. You gave this week's section the title, The Judging Process. Uh, You're not even implying that it's a process here. You're explicitly stating this is a process. It's not an act. It's not something that just happens, but it's a process. What are some of the stages in this process? What is it that makes it a process rather than a single act? Actually, as we mentioned before, there are, uh, they were different judgments in biblical times. For instance, you have in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 1 to, um, to 10, the judgment of a nation over there. And that's a classic one. If you have a chance, I would invite you to really to read it through and to see the judgment process of, uh, over there of the nation of Judah or the kingdom of the south. But we are speaking now about the eschatological, the end time judgment, the final judgment. And I think that we have enough biblical evidences to identify at least three major phases of this judgment. If we go, for instance, to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, you will find in verses 9 to 14, I will not read it for the sake of time, but you can do it later on. Uh, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Some people believe because it's the coming in the clouds of heaven, that is the second coming. That's not the case. Is the heavenly hosts. But he is not coming to this earth but he is coming to the Ancient of Days. And there you have uh, the description of a courtroom. The books are open. In apocalyptic language, whenever books are open, it means the beginning of a judgment. If you take this scene here, and then you go to chapter 8, you will see also in verses 9 to 14, a similar uh, Uh, scene, and you will see that then somebody asks, when will the sanctuary be cleansed? It says that it will take place after 2300 evenings and mornings. And it's uh, parallel to this uh, 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 judicial scene that we have in chapter 7. So they overlap. So we have evidences, of course, time is not enough for us to unpack this, that uh, investigative judgment would take place prior, I mean, prior to the second coming, starting at the end of this period that we have 
cronological, astronomical, energetical basis that it started in 1844. This would be the first phase of the judgment. Then comes the second phase during the millennium. And then comes the third one is that is the punishment of the wicked uh, at the end of the millennium. And so this concept of judgment that Jesus spoke is something that in the book of Revelation is very clear that uh, uh, Jesus even promised that. And Paul says that we will be judging uh, uh, men and even angels. So several phases of the judgment were in the middle of one of them, or maybe even some of them, depending on how you want to look at it right now. And there are yet some to come. I want to read a, a passage here. It's actually the the memory text for this week. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So here Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, for some people, that sounds scary. It sounds uh, it sounds like maybe they have something to, to fear. Maybe they do. But every person has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But if we're afraid of the judgment, we might be tempted to say, well, I wish there wasn't a judgment. It's been said that we don't really miss something until it's gone, sometimes. So what are the implications if there was no judgment, if it didn't exist? What would be some of those implications, and are there reasons why we should be glad that a judgment does exist? Actually, if there would be no judgment... I would be really frustrated because in many cases I would need to do justice by myself because I know that there would be nothing happening to those wicked people. So all this situation of an unjust world is something, of course, we should try to do our best in the sense of of bringing justice to the world, but there are things that escape our hands that we cannot handle. And those ones are the ones that we trust that God will straighten up. And this is a very important point. But let me clarify, Eric, if you don't mind, another matter. Some people might ask, why do you speak about faces of judgment? And this probably is the most significant part for for us to understand this process. Remember something. If everybody, as you read, Eric, the passage that everybody will be judged, and Paul is including himself in this judgment, then it implies that only, not only wicked, but also the righteous will be judged. And it always, the understanding of judgment in the Bible is directly dependent on the human nature and the state of the dead. Why? Remember that the resurrections are the rewards already. Either you will be raised at the first resurrection that the Bible speaks that takes place uh, prior to the millennium, to the thousand years, Or, 
If you are not among the saved, you will be raised at the second resurrection after the millennium. So if a judgment has to take place or people has to be judged, they have to be judged prior to the resurrection that is already the reward. There is not this thing, well, you were raised here in the first resurrection, but sorry, we came to the conclusion after judging your case that you don't belong to this group. You have to go back and to be raised in the second resurrection. Or sorry that we waited till the second resurrection because you should be raised in the first one. So those who will be raised at the first resurrection, that is already the reward, will be judged prior to that resurrection. And those that will be raised at the second resurrection, those will be judged during the millennium. And in this one, the saints will be part of, so that they can know that whatever God did was the best thing. And the final final destruction of the wicked is actually an act of mercy from the part of God. Because actually, the wicked would not feel at home in heaven. So he simply makes them cease to exist. They will receive their punishment, but there is not an everlasting hell. And this is something, a good news. You should not fear the, the, judgment, the judgment, the final judgment, for one simple reason. The judgment will be the vindication of those who are in Christ. So they are good news of the, the judgment. But of course, it will be the punishment for those who refuse to be with Christ. And that makes the whole difference. You know, what you just shared, Alberto, reminds me of a passage at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22, verses 11 and 12. It says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And then in verse number 12, he says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to to his work. So the good news is Jesus is coming back soon. He has his reward for every person. And if you are among the righteous, you will be righteous still. If you are among the just, you will be just still. If in the judgment you are found saved, you are saved forever. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you because it really should be. Well, we're going to come back again for one more week as we take a last look at this subject of death, dying, and the future hope. We're going to end on a high note, and you probably expected that we would, because the Bible ends on a very high note. So next week, we're going to come back again. We're going to look at the last lesson in this quarter, and we hope that you've been blessed, that you've been able to look at this subject from perhaps a new perspective, Maybe you've been reaffirmed in what you already believed, but either way, I hope that you will take the beauty of this Bible teaching and share it with others so that they can have hope in Jesus as well. God bless you. Have a wonderful day, and we will see you next time.